Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, coming to us from Atlanta, Georgia, is Mr. Rahul Singh. He's the host, actually, of his own podcast, The Bearded Mystic Podcast. Episodes and live streams include discussions into Eastern scriptures from different traditions and discussions about everyday spirituality. Rahul has been a spiritual seeker for more than 20 years, and he has a very open-minded approach to spirituality and finds that there is no one-size-fits-all approach, which means he's a perfect fit for this show. So uh, with no further delays, Rahul, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. And how are you? I'm very good, and I'm so excited. We have been dying to have someone who uh, understands Hinduism on our show. It has been such a long, long road to get here. So thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as you know, because you've listened to some of the episodes, uh, we usually ask our guests um, how old they are, where they grew up, and then what generation, if any, they consider themselves a member of. Yes, uh, so I'm 35 uh, years old, and I'm originally from uh, Birmingham, UK, uh, United Kingdom, and uh, I moved over here to the States in December 2017. Yes, I've been here since then in Atlanta, Georgia, and then uh, I consider myself a millennial, and I understand the plight of Gen Z, too. (laughs) (laughs) I do too. That's very well said. Uh, you're such a kind person. I mean, I could tell from like emails I read and just everything. So it's it's a total pleasure to have you on. And um, I am interested. What would you say is the most like culture shocking part of coming from UK to? Uh, I mean, I guess I could be specific and say Georgia, but just in overall the United States. Uh, well, uh, there's a few things. Like for example, I mean, public transport here in Georgia is really bad. Like it's nothing compared to England. And then. Um, but I find that people are more friendly here. They're more they're, they're more likely to smile and say hello. Um, and yeah, other than that, everything is just bigger. Like the roads are bigger, the houses are bigger. Um, and um, yeah, well, the one thing I kept doing was I kept um, comparing prices of everyday items like milk or, <laughs> or cucumbers, like things like that. I'll be comparing the prices in my head. And uh, yeah, those are a few things that I just, um, I still do today, to be honest. Oh yeah, no, I totally understand. So are you like a permanent transplant here or are you just kind of open-minded? Yes, um, uh, I'm now now an actual American citizen. So um, yeah, I just got my citizenship this, no, last year. Uh, So yeah, so yeah, um, permanently here for now, but you just never know where life can take you. Spoken like a true mystic, which is uh, such a cool title, and I love that. So actually, before we get into Hinduism, um, which I, I plan to ask you tons of questions about, I would like you to define mystic, just how you use it, and then to walk our audience through uh, step-by-step like how you became the kind of person who calls yourself a mystic. So I'm assuming you've always been a mystic, but I'm curious about how it relates to self-awareness. <laughs> You're kind to say that I've always been a mystic. Um, I, I still don't consider myself a mystic as well. Um, other people have referred to me uh, as due to some okay, of the poetry that I write and um, the things that I say. And But basically, for me, everyone is a mystic. Everyone has the potential within them to be a mystic. Uh, and it's really just about connecting yourself to the ultimate reality, uh, that oneness, and that's all it is. And whatever method you may use, whatever way connects you to that ultimate oneness is what defines a mystic. It's really about knowing yourself. Um, you know, there's, 
that's all that it really is it's a journey back home it's not like you're going out there traveling anywhere um so yeah so a mystic is the one that's uh, you know walk from the terrain they know what it's like and the unique thing that i find with mysticism and say general spirituality is that with mysticism it's you know it empowers the individual to reach uh, that you you know that ultimate state while with spirituality you can still get into the whole institution thing and it can become rather you know uh, you know, you can get herded into the group rather than expressing your own uh, individuality uh, in, in in terms of understanding that spiritual uh, truth. Very cool, very cool. Um, and so I'm kind of curious because so many people use so many different terms differently. Uh, do you have, like, incorporated in this sense of universal truth-seeking, uh, how do you feel about the term self-realization and do you have any like comments on it? So I know it's a two-part question, but yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, with the term self-realization, I'm pretty okay with that. I probably prefer that over God realization because God is very, very loaded in today's day and age. Um, but with self-realization, what I like about it is it shows the closeness between you and reality that actually it's not a distance that you have to travel as i mentioned so with for me self-realization is just actually understanding that we are the observer of all experiences and all experiences happen um you know are watched from the observer point of view from the beginning of the day to the uh, you know to, when you go to bed at night you you can recollect everything and you've been watching everything yet something within you has remained unchanged and that for me it, when you understand that thing that does not change is self-realization and when you become established in that that's very profound I, I really appreciate that so kind of to tie that into where i'm at since i'm not there but i'm trying to get there uh one of my favorite questions to ask myself but also guests like you is where do you go when you go to sleep mm. you see um there's no way i mean i, I don't mean to do this in a uh, some people say this uh, sentence, but without the foundation. Uh, what I say is that there is nowhere that I go. It's I'm always here in the here and now. Um, the the true I am, meaning that formless awareness. Uh, but yes, the body sleeps, the mind rests, and um, you know when it goes into deep sleep, it goes back into its uh, into itself and. It doesn't need to project anything. So one is still in that awareness, but not necessarily, you know, the mind or body is associated with. Yeah, I like that. And I thought that was a very good nuanced explanation within the explanation. So I, I see why your podcast exists. <laughs> and uh, I also appreciate what you're doing. Um, and I don't think easy, trite answers are ever going to satisfy the truly curious. So I think like you know, there's just pointers in my opinion. So speaking of which, um, I am curious, I don't want to spend the whole interview on your practices and, and Hinduism because I, I really want to explore you. That's more interesting to me, but we have never had a guest on who has any experience with it. So were you born into that religion and can you kind of briefly or in whatever way you'd like to explain the religion? And then after that, I might have follow-up questions. I was born a Hindu and uh, really my journey going deep into Hinduism began around 10 years ago um sorry not 20 around 10 years ago 10 12 years ago um in 2010 
so yeah, 13 years of just exploration into non-duality. Before I thought my idea of Hinduism when I was growing up and what I saw around me was it's all about doing reciting some mantras, doing some rituals, and that's all it was. And you know, that there's this um, you know, you know, apparently thousands of gods or millions of gods. And then when I you know, went into the journey of uh, Advaita Vedanta, which is non-duality, I realized that actually it just talks about one pure consciousness. It doesn't talk about anything uh, more or less than that. And that basically the deities that they talk about are just single attributes to make it more easier for people to understand the vastness of that ultimate reality if they must. But that ultimate reality itself doesn't have any attributes. And I can understand from some uh, for someone that can be quite difficult to associate with which has no attributes which is formless it's not something you can grasp onto you know as easy as something that's a figure or a deity so um and then obviously uh, the one thing in hinduism that is very strongly uh, mentioned and prescribed is to have a teacher have a guru that can help you go further in your spirituality and I was very fortunate to have a guru that really, um, you know, kind of allowed my vision to expand uh, from being attached to name and form to uh, the formless. So, and that was, uh, that's really Hinduism in a nutshell. It's not just rituals and, uh, you know, what people see as, or just yoga, meaning the yoga postures or anything like that. It's, it's more about actually connecting with that ultimate reality connecting with that uh, and being in total absorption of that uh, formless uh, reality and that formless awareness and that's really what hinduism is about but um, i say that with a disclaimer that there are thousands and thousands of traditions within hinduism that come under the umbrella of hinduism and i think that's what makes it a beautiful religion is that nobody's right or wrong everyone's found their way and Eventually, um, you know, all roads will lead to that ultimate reality. For me, as a as a Westerner who was brought up, um, I mean, I was technically brought up Jewish, but I was really brought up with no religion. And my parents are and were uh, transcendental meditators, so they love Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and they love India, and so does my brother. So I've I've had so many like brushes with like the Hindu philosophy, and what I can never explain to myself or others, and it's because I'm lazy and I haven't bothered to study them both is like why so many of us in the West conflate Buddhism and Hinduism. Do you have any suggestions for why that occurs? And, and uh, do you see them as being more similar than not or anything like that? Yes, they are definitely more similar than, um, than it appears. The one thing that is beautiful about Buddhism is that I don't think there's been a greater psychologist than uh, Buddha himself. The way he understood the mind and then has, you know, obviously, uh, has works attributed to him about it is phenomenal. So in terms of Buddhism, and uh, you know, they go, so in Buddhism, they go to the end result of shunyata or what we refer to as emptiness or the void. And literally that's the same thing we go through, but instead of us saying that Hindus saying there is uh, shunyata or uh, the void, we say there is, uh, there's, it's, it's actually fullness, it's infinite. But it's pointing towards the same thing, like, you know, it's like a paradox. Um, so uh, the only 
thing also that's different is that in Hinduism, we may have specific answers for something like, is there a soul? Is there a God? Uh, while in Buddhism, they leave that um, question unanswered. Um, neither do they deny it, neither do they approve it. And that's actually a pretty cool thing. Yeah, that's really cool. The Bhagavad Gita, to me, that's like, as a Westerner again, it's kind of like the Bible of Hinduism. And I'm curious if A, that's somewhat accurate, but B, what I'm actually more curious about is who claims to have written the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, or does no one claim? Is it just the Vedas? Like, what's what's going on there? It's a very good question, actually. So I would say the actual Bible of the... Um, so we don't have one single Bible that I would say it's actually three texts which are the foundation of um, Vedanta or the end of the Vedas, um, meaning the philosoph philosophical portions. Uh, and that is one is the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, and then the Brahma Sutras. Those three texts are the foundation and you could consider them to be uh, the complete. If you want to have an understanding of Vedanta, those are uh, the texts. Now, um, the Brahma Sutras was written by a sage whose name I'm forgetting right now. Um, but the Bhagavad Gita was written by Vedvyas. Um, but uh, the funny thing is, uh, there's been so many Vedvyas ascribed with that name, we can't say which one specifically had written that. And with the the Upanishads, the beauty thing, beautiful thing about that is, is that they are anonymous sages who basically through meditation, through continuous meditation, through continuous focus, and really, you know, fully understanding the, uh, the message or what was revealed to them, uh, is then, uh, you know, they already, it first used to be an oral transmission where they used to uh, verbally communicate this to the seekers, but now it's something obviously that is written. So uh, that is just by unknown rishis and sages, um, uh, of the very ancient times. When I say ancient, uh, some of the Upanishads are rather recent in terms of maybe just, you know, um, 2,000 years old or, you know, the Upanishads could be as long as 10,000 years before. Okay, a little bit switching topics, but kind of still in the same ballpark. My personal hero, like the person who resonates the most with me, um, I believe he was uh, Hindu at some point, but uh, it's Nasagadatta Maharaj. Are you familiar with him? Yes, very much so. So he's like my hero, and he just, he again, he resonates with me. Like, he he somehow just reaches me a little deeper than the rest of the big guns that I love. But I also really respect Yogananda, the author of Autobiography of a Yogi. I'm curious what you think about both of these men, but then also is there, like, a different person that you would direct people like me and other listeners to pay attention to? Well... I'm with you in terms of um, the admiration towards Nisargadatta Maharaj. I think he um, his works have been very influential. And, you know, they, they are now kind of discussed by people who are looking at the philosophy of mind, who are looking at uh, neuroscience. They're now looking at his works to kind of match. You know, Sam Harris has his, um, has I Am That as one of the books to read. So I think Nisargadatta Maharaj has a lot to give, not just now, but will continue to do so in the future. And likewise with uh, Ramana Maharishi, I will put under the same uh, belt. The three teachers I'd like to mention now, Swami Vivekananda, a great um, sage. Um, he, he, you know, he came to the first uh, world parliaments of religion 
Um, he was one of the first speakers and Nicholas Tesla loved him and um, everyone was amazed by uh, this amazing personality who kind of brought, well, he's the first person who brought uh, Hinduism to the West. Um, the other two are, um, one is Rupert Spira. He's a great non-dual teacher living in Oxford um, right now. And I think he 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 does it without the, you know, the, the jargon of spirituality. He does a really good job of that. But say if you're like me, where you like both, where you like the jargon and yet you like something without the jargon, then, uh, then Swami Sarvapriyananda of Vedanta, New York, the same place where Swami Vivekananda had established his order, um, he is a great uh, teacher as well. He's alive today and uh, he, he talks to, um, you know, f f uh, physicists in Harvard and uh, Princeton and Stanford. He's really great. The last two are the ones that are alive today, uh, so they're approachable. I, I like that some of these people are still alive. I will dive deeper into this, but I do want to return the interview to you, and I really want to focus on you. You're, you're clearly a well-spoken, intelligent, and uh, reasonable man, and I think that's awesome, so um, thank you. And so I think I next want to just ask the only question that is canned, which is, uh, what do you think happens when you die? Hey, everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot -P com. Thanks. Well, uh, I'm more or less in line with what um, majority of the Hindu thought is, where basically uh, once you die, either you are reincarnated. But the main emphasis that I like to do after we die, I would say there's actually no death. There is only aliveness. So... Yes, the physical body and the mind does die, but it is the, in my opinion, it's the mind that travels to the next birth, which will be cons constituted as a jeev, a J-I-V-A. And all, that jeev contains all your karma, your, your memories, your conditionings, your, uh, or known as vasanas uh, in the Sanskrit term. All those things are contained in the jeev. Now, the jeev is what goes from one life to another in terms of reincarnation. And obviously, according to the karma you do in this life, determines uh, where your headspace is going to be when you die. So if you do good karma and you address all the uh, conditionings, the habits, the, uh, you know, all those, thing, all those things, then either you will be going into the next life or you'll be uh, liberated. The main aim is liberation in Hinduism, and it's one that sometimes doesn't get enough attention. Liberation meaning getting out of the cycle of birth and death, basically. So once you understand that your real self is this ultimate reality, well, that can't die. You know, that's always been alive. That's the, actually, that's the only thing in existence, according to Advaita Vedanta. That pure consciousness is the only thing, that formless awareness. So that's what you really are. Uh, and once we understand that, then we are liberated. When I say understand that, I mean a deep understanding where we, where we kind of direct our identification away from body-mind to uh, the, the, the formless awareness itself. So I hope I've explained it. So yes, I do believe in reincarnation. Um, but I would say the main aim for any Hindu seeker, if there really are true and honest is liberation okay so you hit my 
softest spot that exists in my entire mental consciousness and my heart. And so I have to ask you a barrage of quick questions and uh, hopefully you will be able to answer them um, because you, you really got to where I'm at lately, which is I'm like 41 years old and I know that I've been just paying attention to all the wrong things all my life and yet also meditating regularly, trying to do no harm and trying to follow the non-dual approach to liberation. So I have this weird like theory question, which is what would happen if a soul just came to earth and every time they came here and they got old enough to realize that they were here and they wanted to be liberated, they just offed themselves. Well, they will, you know, eventually Goma will always accumulate. And because Goma accumulates, uh, you will never have the same uh, birth again and again. Like it will never be the same situation occurring again. You know, there will always be because you can never control what other people do. You know, that's really out of your control. So eventually, even the choices you have in terms of what to do in each life will be totally different. Uh, you will either do a karma that will help you or will obviously um, may take you on another uh, path. So for me, it will never be the same. Even if your intention is different in one situation compared to the previous life, everything changes. Just the intention. Great answer. There's like this part of me that's very aware because I've worked around death a lot and I've just, you know, and I host a show and I talk about it that like, it's not a big deal. Like, like I've watched people die and like, they're really not as afraid as people are when they, when they theorize and fantasize about it or whatever the opposite of fantasy is, um, worry about it. Whereas like, for me, I know that I don't want to bring on the Dharma. I don't want to like leave my children in your opinion, would it be the best use of everyone's time to just go to some cave and meditate? Or Because, you know, Nasagarada, that's why he resonates so much with me. He was walking up the hill, and then he turned around, and he was like, damn it, yeah. I got a family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that's why I love him. Like, So can you kind of comment on that? Yeah, I, I am fully for uh, having an integrated life. So I do believe that it's okay to have attachments. What shouldn't happen is those attachments shouldn't... Um, shouldn't create any fear in you, uh, it, you know, address those fears. In fact, having a family is the one way where we can check our ego and uh, with our reactions, with our responses to things. I mean, like, for example, my wife is a perfect mirror for me because she'll tell me exactly where my ego is, even though I may not want to listen to it, but I can utilize that attachment for the right purpose. So, um, I think spirituality is best done in uh, in a family life. I think you can do it. You can achieve the best, uh, achieve the highest goal, which is liberation. Many examples of that have happened in India. You mentioned one, which was Nishasaga Dutta Maharaj. But yes, does there come a point where you will end up being in more solitude? Yes. But that doesn't mean that you will not respond when it comes to family situations. So for example, if a loved one needs you, you will be there for them. But you will treat it very differently. Where before you may have fear or anxiety, this time you just present with them as awareness rather than the person or the persona. Now you're with them completely as your universal self rather than this uh, narrow individual that we've constantly dealt our relationships with. So that will be the difference, I feel. Um, yeah, so I think absolutely being in the in the family is much. I think it's much more exhilarating as a journey, to be honest. 
I mean, what, what would you do in a cave? It's just you're on your own and there's no challenges. Of course, anyone can become a saint in that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I totally agree. And uh, yeah, being a family man is not easy and it does not make me feel saintly, but it is by far the most wholesome experience I've ever experienced. And I love it. I'm addicted to it. So I, I do. I completely agree with your answer. And, and also, I didn't ask that question with that answer in mind. So I really appreciate, again, your intellect and your care. My next question would just be the no harm principle. When I was very young, I was obsessed with uh, no, not harming others. So I became like a very strict vegetarian. And then I saw this uh, visiting astrologist and he laughed at me and said, do you drink bottled water? Or do you drink water? And I said, of course. And he said, well, you know, did was it heated? Did they kill the bacteria in it? And I was like, I, I guess so. And he's like, so you're killing life. And he, you know, his point was not lost on me. So I am curious, like, where do you draw the line? How do, how do you feel about the principle of self-defense? Is it is it ever okay to use it and, and harm another, kill another? It's a very good question. I'll resort to the Bhagavad Gita because that's an urgent face, a similar situation when, uh, you know, he was filled with anxiety and that was the whole thing. Like, how can he harm another person? Forget that he had to harm uh, his own family, his teachers, people he admired, who he grew up with, his friends. He had to harm them. And his main dilemma was, how can I do this? And Sri Krishna there is very clear. He tells Arjun that, one, you know, all these people, you know, they, they've been, um, you know, they're, they're already dead, the ones that you're worrying about. That's one level. And then the other thing is that um, what we mean by ahimsa is actually that action which causes the least amount of harm. So that's the way to see it. No matter what you do, the moment you step on uh, you know, the carpet in your home, you probably kill some dust mite. It's impossible to have uh, this aspect of no harm. So I think what we have to do is analyze um, is what action will cause the least amount of harm, least amount of suffering for someone, or if if possible, to do an action uh, which will not cause any suffering, but just pain, uh, and that pain at the least amount. Um, obviously, uh, that may, that will take time in terms of we have to train our mind, that train our intellect to discern what the best action is, what the best choice is. In fact, sometimes not reacting, so taking a moment to pause instead of jumping into it. Um, so we have to constantly do that work. And it's not something that happens overnight. But yeah, I think if we uh, sometimes, you know, people talk about nonviolence, but it's it's a very difficult thing to do. And especially if someone is in a very um, is in a situation where they could be harmed i think why shouldn't they um you know kind of self-defend and and you know get themselves out of that situation so i think um i think yeah it's whatever causes the least amount of harm so i'm pretty good with that cool that's a great answer and that actually comforts me thank you do you believe that nations have karma like do you believe that we're reincarnated also within like cultures and and nations and regions that's a very interesting um idea and notion actually and I, I do think a country does carry its own goma in many ways i mean if you think about the atrocities that happen i you know you kind of see some of the, the way some of the things that are now reacting back like for example the situation in england today it's not it's, it's not the strong empire that it used to be and yet it infl inflicted a lot of harm 
when it had the empire. Now, is that all coming back to England and harming it? Uh, you know, who knows? So I think it's possible. Uh, for example, even in uh, the country we're in right now, in America, we had what we thought was progress and we had these years of don't know what's going on here. And then um, some sort of peace uh, before possibly a storm right now. I think we're constantly, I think, yes, the country carries its own collective gurma and the people in it um, carry the collective gurma. You know, it all, you know, we can't influence what one president is going to do or what one politician is going to do or what one chief justice is going to decide for the whole country. It does tell you where society is when those decisions are done or when those situations arise. And I think personally, as a society, we have a lot of work to do in terms of self-reflection, that the amount of things that we are letting occur, letting, letting situations occur and happen, um, is very worrying for the general society. And I think we have to self-reflect and see. And this is the thing about being a Hindu, is that it doesn't take you away from uh, these issues either. We have to address those issues and see if a decision, if a policy is actually causing more harm than it, w than it is in terms of happiness. So if it's causing happiness and joy for a few, but causing harm for many, that's a disastrous policy. That's so well said. Thank you so much. I, I am enamored with your eloquence and with your mind and it's just such a pleasure to meet you today and interview you i always let my guests just kind of have the floor what would you like to say to my audience thank you well really um i would say i, I think i'm going to align myself to the topic or the theme behind your podcast which is approaching death and you know what um, the main reason why we go towards spirituality is to find the death of our suffering. That's the ultimate reason why we do this. And the main thing we want to destroy is any notion of suffering, any aspect of suffering in our life. And we want to enter a place where there is happiness. And the one thing I like to do with my podcast is bring someone closer to that happiness and become stronger within themselves create a strong intellect, create a strong mind where they can address the thoughts and the intentions and the emotions that will lead them to suffering and actually cut that tie towards suffering. So, um, and the best thing to do and uh, one of the ways to do that is actually meditate on death. I think if we all meditated on death, if we all went to a crematorium for a week every day in the week and just saw people's uh, dead bodies there, I think people would actually understand that life is a lot more important than the let on and um, we should care for one another. And, and that's the main thing I like to uh, plug in my podcast is, you know, have a common sense approach to life. Don't, um, don't be rigid. Uh, be flexible and understand that everybody's different and embrace everybody's differences. One thing my guru always used to say is that we're a beautiful, diverse garden of existence. And, um, and that's where we unite. That's where there is oneness in our diversity. And instead of seeing this, this diversity as differences, as things to, be, uh, to have opposition with each other, 
use those things to unite with each other. So, um, so yeah, I, I really love your podcast, to be honest. I was on a binge this today. Yeah, I was thinking, oh, I just listened to two episodes, but I ended up binging on it. And, um, and um, because I, I think death is the most important subject that one should study. Everybody. And I don't think, if you don't mind me saying, I think, I think we should talk to our children about death as well. We shouldn't hide it from them. I remember growing up and our parents uh, would be very reluctant to talk about death until it happened to a family member where then you'd have to see in in, in Indian culture, you'll see the dead body um, before the, uh, uh, during the funeral. And so you would have to see the lifeless body and then you'd have, your mind will have to wrap itself around that. Like what is, what is it that I'm witnessing here? So I, I do think that uh, we should have that conversation. So death is normalized and we get over that fear. As you mentioned before, that uh, people fantasize about it. Um, to get rid of that uh, fantasy, we have to talk about it and have those discussions. Well, from your lips to God's ears, as my mom always says, I loved every word you said on this podcast. I'm impressed by you. I'm proud to have you on as a guest. I'm very proud. Um, and I hope my audience was paying attention. Maybe re-listen to this and definitely check out Rahul's podcast. Thank you so much for helping us put another nail in the coffin. Um, I, I honestly feel comforted that people like you exist on Earth. And I'm not a big rah-rah-rah jingoistic person, but hey, if America's a team and I'm on it, I am glad you joined our team. It's a great comfort for me to see that you're so open-minded and that you would bless our land with your philosophy. To everyone listening at home, this has been another episode of Coffin Talk. My name is Mike Oppenheim. The number one way to support the show is to head over to MikeyUp.com and hit the big subscribe button for the free weekly newsletter. And if you want to go the extra mile, become a premium subscriber with all sorts of extra goodies. From my heart to yours, I love you. And again, Rahul, thank you so much. And we will see you soon.